Chapter Three of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Four, Part Two, Urban Grandier, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. Hardly had tranquillity been restored when Mignon, Dutibot, Menau, Meunier, and Barreau, having lost their cause before the Archbishop of Bordeaux and finding themselves threatened by Grandier with a prosecution for libel and forgery met together to consult as to the best means of defending themselves before the unbending severity of this man who would they felt destroy them if they did not destroy him the result of this consultation was that very shortly afterwards queer reports began to fly about it was whispered that the ghosts whom the pious director had expelled had again invaded the convent under an invisible and impalpable form and that several of the nuns had given by their words and acts incontrovertible proofs of being possessed when these reports were mentioned to mignon he instead of denying their truth cast up his eyes to heaven and said that god was certainly a great and merciful god but it was also certain that satan was very clever especially when he was barked by that false human science called magic however as to the reports though they were not entirely without foundation he would not go so far as to say that any of the sisters were really possessed by devils that being a question which time alone could decide. The effect of such an answer on minds already prepared to listen to the most impossible things may easily be guessed. Mignon let the gossip go its rounds for several months without giving it any fresh food, but at length, when the time was ripe, he called on the priest of Saint-Jacques at Chinon, and told him that matters had now come to such a pass in the Ursuline convent that he felt it impossible to bear up alone under the responsibility of caring for the salvation of the afflicted nuns, and he begged him to accompany him to the convent. This priest, whose name was Pierre Bar, was exactly the man whom Mignon needed in such a crisis. He was of melancholy temperament and dreamed dreams and saw visions. His one ambition was to gain a reputation for asceticism and holiness. Desiring to surround his visit with the solemnity befitting such an important event, he set out for Laudon at the head of all his parishioners, the whole procession going on foot in order to arouse interest and curiosity. But this measure was quite needless. It took less than that to set the town agog. While the faithful filled the churches, offering up prayers for the success of the exorcisms, Mignon and Bada entered upon their task at the convent, where they remained shut up with the nuns for six hours. At the end of this time, Bada appeared and announced to his parishioners that they might go back to Chinon without him, for he had made up his mind to remain for the present at Laudon, in order to aid the venerable director of the Ursuline convent in the holy work he had undertaken. He enjoined on them to pray morning and evening with all possible fervor, that in spite of the serious dangers by which it was surrounded, the good cause might finally triumph. This advice, unaccompanied as it was by any explanation, redoubled the curiosity of the people, and the belief gained ground that it was not merely one or two nuns who were possessed of devils, but the whole sisterhood. It was not very long before the name of the magician who had worked this wonder began to be mentioned quite openly. Satan, it was said, had drawn Urbain Grandier into his power through his pride. Urbain had entered into a pact with the evil spirit by which he had sold him his soul in return for being made the most learned man on earth. Now, as Urbain's knowledge was much greater than that of the inhabitants of Laudon, this story gained general credence in the town, although here and there was to be found a man sufficiently enlightened to shrug his shoulders at these absurdities and to laugh at the mummeries of which as yet he saw only the ridiculous side. For the next ten or twelve days Mignon and Bada spent the greater part of their time at the convent, sometimes remaining there for six hours at a stretch, sometimes the entire day. 
At length, on Monday, the 11th of October, 1632, they wrote to the priest of Venier, to Monsieur Guillaume Cerise de la Guerinière, bailiff of the Laudenois, and to Monsieur Louis Chavet, civil lieutenant, begging them to visit the Ursuline convent in order to examine two nuns who were possessed by evil spirits, and to verify the strange and almost incredible manifestations of this possession. Being thus formally appealed to, the two magistrates could not avoid compliance with the request. It must be confessed that they were not free from curiosity, and felt far from sorry at being able to get to the bottom of the mystery of which for some time the whole town was talking. They repaired, therefore, to the convent, intending to make a thorough investigation as to the reality of the possession, and as to the efficacy of the exorcisms employed. Should they judge that the nuns were really possessed, and that those who tried to deliver them were in earnest, they would authorize the continuation of the efforts at exorcism. But if they were not satisfied on these two points, they would soon put an end to the whole thing as a comedy. When they reached the door, Mignon, wearing alb and stole, came to meet them. He told them that the feelings of the nuns had for more than two weeks been harrowed by the apparition of spectres and of other blood-curdling visions, that the mother superior and two nuns had evidently been possessed by evil spirits for over a week, that owing to the efforts of Bada and some Carmelite friars who were good enough to assist him against their common enemies, the devils had been temporarily driven out. But on the previous Sunday night, the 10th of October, the mother superior, Jean de Belfield, whose conventual name was Jean de Zanga, and a lay sister called Jeanne Dumanieu had again been entered into by the same spirits. It had, however, been discovered by means of exorcisms that a new compact, of which the symbol and token was a bunch of roses, had been concluded, the symbol and token of the first having been three black thorns. He added that during the time of the first possession the demons had refused to give their names, but by the power of his exorcisms this reluctance had been overcome, the spirit which had resumed possession of the mother superior having at length revealed that its name was Astaroth, one of the greatest enemies of God, while the devil which had entered into the lay sister was of a lower order, and was called Sabulon. Unfortunately, continued Mignon, just now the two afflicted nuns were resting, and he requested the bailiff and the civil lieutenant to put off their inspection till a little later. The two magistrates were just about to go away when a nun appeared, saying that the devils were again doing their worst with the two into whom they had entered. Consequently, they accompanied Mignon and the priest from Venier to an upper room, in which were seven narrow beds, of which two only were occupied, one by the mother superior and the other by the lay sister. The superior, who was the more thoroughly possessed of the two, was surrounded by the Carmelite monks. The sisters belonging to the convent, Maturin Rousseau, priest and canon of St. Croix, and Manuri, a surgeon from the town. No sooner did the two magistrates join the others than the superior was seized with violent convulsions, writhing and uttering squeals in exact imitation of a sucking pig. The two magistrates looked on in profound astonishment, which was greatly increased when they saw the patient now bury herself in her bed, now spring right out of it, the whole performance being accompanied by such diabolical gestures and grimaces that, if they were not quite convinced that the possession was genuine, they were at least filled with admiration of the manner in which it was simulated. Mignon next informed the bailiff and the civil lieutenant that, although the superior had never learned Latin, she would reply in that language to all the questions addressed to her, if such were their desire. The magistrates answered that, as they were there in order to examine thoroughly into the facts of the case, they begged the exorcists to give them every possible proof that the possession was real. Upon this, Mignon approached the mother superior, and having ordered everyone to be silent, placed two of his fingers in her mouth, and having gone through the form of exorcism prescribed by the ritual, he asked the following questions word for word as they are given. "'Why have you entered into the body of this young girl?' 
causa animizotatis, out of enmity. Percord pactum, by what pact? Per flores, by flowers. Qualis, what flowers? Rosas, roses. Quis misfit, by whom wert thou sent? At this question the magistrates remarked that the superior hesitated to reply. Twice she opened her mouth in vain, but a third time she said in a weak voice, Dic Cognomen, what is his surname? Urbanus Urban. Here there was again the same hesitation, but as if impelled by the will of the exorcist, she answered, Grandier. Grandier. Dic Qualitatum. What is his profession? Sacerdos, a priest. Cujus Ecclesiae? Of what church? Sancti Petri, Saint Pierre. Quie persona atulit flores? Who brought the flowers? Diabolica. Someone sent by the devil. As the patient pronounced the last word, she recovered her senses, and having repeated a prayer, attempted to swallow a morsel of bread which was offered to her. She was, however, obliged to spit it out, saying it was so dry she could not get it down. Something more liquid was then brought, but even of that she could not swallow very little, as she fell into convulsions every few minutes. Upon this the two officials, seeing there was nothing more to be got out of the superior, withdrew to one of the window recesses and began to converse in a low tone. Whereupon Mignon, who feared that they had not been sufficiently impressed, followed them and drew their attention to the fact that there was much in what they had just seen to recall the case of Galfredi, who had been put to death a few years before in consequence of a decree of the Parliament of Aix in Provence. This ill-judged remark of Mignon showed so clearly what his aim was that the magistrates made no reply. The civil lieutenant remarked that he had been surprised that Mignon had not made any attempt to find out the cause of the enmity of which the superior had spoken, and which it was so important to find out. But Mignon excused himself by saying that he had no right to put questions merely to gratify curiosity. The civil lieutenant was about to insist on the matter being investigated, when the lay sister in her turn went into a fit, thus extricating Mignon from his embarrassment. The magistrates approached the lay sister's bed at once, and directed Mignon to put the same questions to her as to the superior. He did so, but all in vain, all she would reply was, "'To the other! To the other!' Mignon explained this refusal to answer by saying that the evil spirit which was in her was of an inferior order and referred all questions to Astaroth, who was his superior. As this was the only explanation, good or bad, offered them by Mignon, the magistrates went away and drew up a report of all they had seen and heard without comment, merely appending their signatures. But in the town very few people showed the same discretion and reticence as the magistrates. The bigoted believed, the hypocrites pretended to believe, and the worldly-minded, who were numerous, discussed the doctrine of possession in all its phases, and made no secret of their own entire incredulity. They wondered, and not without reason it must be confessed, what had induced the devils to go out of the nuns' bodies for two days only, and then come back and resume possession, to the confusion of the exorcists. Further, they wanted to know why the Mother Superior's devil spoke Latin, while the lay sisters was ignorant of that tongue for a mere difference of rank in the hierarchy of hell did not seem a sufficient explanation of such a difference in education. 
Mignon's refusal to go on with his interrogations as to the cause of the enmity made them, they said, suspect that knowing he had reached the end of Astaroth's classical knowledge, he felt it useless to try to continue the dialogue in the Ciceronian idiom. Moreover, it was well known that only a few days before all Urban's worst enemies had met in conclave in the village of Puydendan, and besides, how stupidly Mignon had showed his hand by mentioning Galfredi, the priest who had been executed at I. Lastly, why had not a desire for impartiality been shown by calling in other than Carmelite monks to be present at the exorcism, that order having a private quarrel with Grandier? It must be admitted that this way of looking at the case was not wanting in its shrewdness. On the following day, October 12th, the bailiff and the civil lieutenant, having heard that exorcisms had been again tried without their having been informed beforehand, requested a certain canon Rousseau to accompany them, and set out with him and their clerk for the convent. On arriving they asked for Mignon, and on his appearance they told him that this matter of exorcism was of such importance that no further steps were to be taken in it without the authorities being present, and that in future they were to be given timely notice of every attempt to get rid of the evil spirits. They added that this was all the more necessary as Mignon's position as director of the sisterhood and his well-known hate for Grandier would draw suspicions on him unworthy of his cloth, suspicions which he ought to be the first to wish to see dissipated, and that quickly, and that therefore the work which he had so piously begun would be completed by exorcists appointed by the court. Mignon replied that, though he had not the slightest objection to the magistrates being present at all the exorcisms, yet he could not promise that the spirits would reply to anyone except himself and Bara. Just at that moment Bara came on the scene, paler and more gloomy than ever, and speaking with the air of a man whose word no one could help believing, he announced that before their arrival some most extraordinary things had taken place. The magistrates asked what things, and Bada replied that he had learned from the mother superior that she was possessed, not by one, but by seven devils, of whom Astaroth was the chief, that Grandier had entrusted his pact with the devil under the symbol of a bunch of roses to a certain Jean Pivard, to give to a girl who had introduced it into the convent garden by throwing it over the wall, that this took place in the night between Saturday and Sunday, Hora Secunda Nocturna, two hours after midnight that those were the very words the superior had used, but that while she readily named Pivot, she absolutely refused to give the name of the girl, that on asking what Pivot was, she had replied, Pauper Magus, a poor magician, that he had then had pressed her as to the word Magus, and that she had replied, Magianus et civis, magician and citizen, and that just as she said those words the magistrates had arrived, and he had asked no more questions. The two officials listened to this information with the seriousness befitting men entrusted with high judicial functions, and announced to the two priests that they had proposed to visit the possessed women and witness for themselves the miracles that were taking place. The clerics offered no opposition, but said they feared that the devils were fatigued and would refuse to reply, and in fact when the officials reached the sick room the two patients appeared to have regained some degree of calm. Mignon took advantage of this quiet moment to say mass to which the two magistrates listened devoutly and tranquilly, and while the sacrifice was being offered the demons did not dare to move. It was expected that they would offer some opposition at the elevation of the host, but everything passed off without disturbance. Only the lay sisters' hands and feet twitched a great deal, and this was the only fact which the magistrates thought worthy of mention in their report for that morning. Bada assured them, however, that if they would return about three o'clock the devils would probably have recovered sufficiently from their fatigue to give a second performance. As the two gentlemen had determined to see the affair to the end, they returned to the convent at the hour named, accompanied by Monsieur Irinée de Saint-Mat, 
Sir Adeshoneau and found the room in which the possessed were lying full of curious spectators, for the exorcists had been true prophets. The devils were at work again. The superior, as always, was the more tormented of the two, as was only to be expected. She having seven devils in her all at once, she was terribly convulsed, and was writhing and foaming at the mouth as if she were mad. No one could long continue in such a condition without serious injury to health. Bada therefore asked the devil-in-chief how soon he would want to come out. Cross money. Tomorrow morning, he replied. The exorcist then tried to hurry him, asking him why he would not come out at once, whereupon the superior murmured the word, Pactum, a pact, and then Zacerdos, a priest, and finally Finis, or Fini, for even those nearest could not catch the word distinctly, as the devil, afraid doubtless of perpetrating a barbarism, spoke through the nun's closely clenched teeth. This being all decidedly unsatisfying, the magistrates insisted that the examination should continue, but the devils had again exhausted themselves and refused to utter another word. The priest even tried touching the superior's head with the picks while prayers and litanies were recited, but it was all in vain, except that some of the spectators thought that the contortions of the patient became more violent when the intercessions of certain saints were invoked, as, for instance, Saints Augustine Jerome, Antony, and Mary Magdalene. Bada next directed the mother superior to dedicate her heart and soul to God, which she did without difficulty, but when he commanded her to dedicate her body also, the chief devil indicated by fresh convulsions that he was not going to allow himself to be deprived of a domicile without resistance, and made those who had heard him say that he would leave the next morning feel that he had only said so under compulsion, and their curiosity as to the result became heightened. At length, however, despite the obstinate resistance of the demon, the superior succeeded in dedicating her body also to God, and thus victorious her features resumed their usual expression, and smiling as if nothing had happened, she turned to Bada and said that there was no vestige of Satan left in her. The civil lieutenant then asked her if she remembered the questions she had been asked and the answers she had given, but she replied that she remembered nothing. But afterwards, having taken some refreshment, she said to those around her that she recollected perfectly how the first possession, over which Mignon had triumphed, had taken place. One evening, about ten o'clock, while several nuns were still in her room, although she was already in bed, it seemed to her that someone took her hand and laid something on it. Closing her fingers at that instant, she felt a sharp pain as if she had been pricked by three pins, and hearing her scream, the nuns came to her bedside to ask what ailed her. She held out her hand, and they found three black thorns sticking in it, each having made a tiny wound. Just as she had told this tale, the lay sister, as if to prevent all commentary, was seized with convulsions, and Bada recommenced his prayers and exorcisms, but was soon interrupted by shrieks, for one of the persons present had seen a black cat come down the chimney and disappear. Instantly everyone concluded it must be the devil, and began to seek it out. It was not without great difficulty that it was caught, for, terrified at the sight of so many people and at the noise, the poor animal had sought refuge under a canopy, but at last it was secured and carried to the superior's bedside, where Bara began his exorcisms once more, covering the cat with signs of the cross and adjuring the devil to take his true shape. Suddenly the torriere, a woman who received the tradespeople, came forward declaring the supposed devil to be only her cat, and she immediately took possession of it lest some harm should happen to it. The gathering had been just about to separate, but Bara, fearing that the incident of the cat might throw a ridiculous light upon the evil spirits, resolved to awake once more a salutary terror by announcing that he was going to burn the flowers through which the second spell had been made to work. 
producing a bunch of white roses already faded, he ordered a lighted brazier to be brought. He then threw the flowers on the glowing charcoal, and to the general astonishment, they were consumed without any visible effect. The heavens still smiled, no peal of thunder was heard, and no unpleasant odor diffused itself through the room. Bada, feeling that the baldness of this act of destruction had had a bad effect, predicted that the morrow would bring forth wondrous things, that the chief devil would speak more distinctly than hitherto, that he would leave the body of the superior giving such clear signs of his passage that no one would dare to doubt any longer that it was a case of genuine possession. Thereupon the criminal lieutenant, Henry Herve, who had been present during the exorcism, said they must seize upon the moment of his exit to ask about Pivart, who was unknown at Laudon, although everyone who lived there knew everybody else. Bada replied in Latin, et hoc dicet puerlam nominobi. He will not only tell about him, but he will also name the young girl. The young girl whom the devil was to name was, it may be recollected, she who had introduced the flowers into the convent and whose name the demon until now had absolutely refused to give. On the strength of these promises, everyone went home to await the morrow with impatience. End of chapter 3. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.